strong voices. We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest. We're in trouble and the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Strong Voices. Uh, we're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here in our new country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vice Channel 911. Renee FM here in Alice Springs and Bantua and coming to you via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. My name's Kyle Yelling. I'm your host for Strong Voices again today. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Coming up on the program, the peak body representing First Nations children says there needs to be more change across all governments to reduce First Nations children in out-of-home care. Snakes Family Matters report show that there are low rates of Aboriginal children reuniting with their families this past financial year. Also, earlier this week, the Tunganjura Women's Family Safety Group released a series of guidelines for media and people working in communications on how to report ethically on domestic family and sexual violence. We hear uh, some of those speeches from the launch on the program today. But first, the Territory's Stolen Generations Redress Scheme Bill, which will compensate and support survivors of the Stolen Generations from the Northern Territory and the ACT, was passed by the Senate last week. Eligible survivors will be able to apply for a one-off payment of $75,000 for the harm caused by forcible removal and a further $7,000 to healing and support services. Eileen Cummings from the Northern Territory Stolen Generations Aboriginal Corporation says the Australian government's acknowledgement of the trauma inflicted on children of the Stolen Generations has been a long time coming. I wrote to three Prime Ministers, I wrote to Senators, to Ministers, all around Australia, and only a couple of them responded. Not many, and then all of a sudden the Prime Minister announced that he will give us some sort of compensation. But I said what I wanted all the time was for them to take responsibility, recognise what they did was wrong, and also recognise the Stolen Generation Group of the Northern Territory. Labor was prepared to help us through, but see, they're not in power. We have to go to the government that is in power, and that's who I've been writing to. Both myself and our board, the Northern Territory Stolen Generation Board, have been doing this for years now to try and get them to come to the party, and they finally have. Compensation is there, but, you know, that's not something that we were worried about. All I wanted the government to do was to take responsibility for what they did to us. It's not much money, but the first thing they said is we'll make sure that our children got something and we have a a funeral plan. They're not thinking about themselves with this compensation. They're thinking about their children and where they can help their children with that money. And that's all they thought about. 
a lot of them don't want to talk, you know, but we got to... They don't realise the trauma and the hurt that we went through as children. They removed me from my mother. My grandfather was head of that tribal group that I belonged to, and he was a really powerful man in his own right. But I lost the right to actually talk for his country until I was sent back there so that NLC could acknowledge that I was part of that tribal group that my grandfather belonged to. But it took years to do that, and many of us have been denied that opportunity to do that. I might have been a little bit more fortunate by ending up going back because I was determined to do that, and my mother was determined that I have the rights of, of, of the land like my grandfather had. Uh, she made sure I was part of that uh, once I finally reconnected with her. But it took me a long time, and I'm still learning a lot about a country that my grandfather belongs to. People still are going on about, you know, we should get on with our lives. We shut away that trauma and that hurt to try and survive and live in this world. Many of us did that. Yet even though we had all of that, we ended up having quite productive lives, you know. We went out and worked for ourselves. I'm 78. The oldest one of our people is 95. Many of our people have suffered intergenerational trauma. It's something that we've all fought for. And when we were looking at all other states getting compensated and getting all these programs and everything, the Northern Territory was left behind again because we were under the federal government. But at last, they've come forward and they used to say to me, why, why don't you want to join Reconciliation Island? I said, how can I reconcile when this is still a blot in our lives and we want the federal government and the Commonwealth to acknowledge that and take responsibility, and they have. We've got a law firm actually looking at the deceased people now and uh, they're putting something forward as a class action for those people. So we're still negotiating with those lawyers as well because we feel that they suffered just like we did. They may be past now, but their children would have gone through the same sort of things, you know. And we feel that they have a right to something that we get from the federal government. The eldest person that we got up here is in our home now and can't really communicate with his family. And, and we've got many people like that through the Stolen Generation Group. For the Northern Territory, we were fighting and fighting for a long time because the other states seemed to be ahead of us because their states helped them. But because we were under the Commonwealth, of course, we had to keep on fighting. It's just sad that so many of our people have passed. Um, they're not here to help us celebrate and for this acknowledgement. But hopefully their children will take it on board because we've got a lot of descendants that we're liaising with and talking to. Some of them don't quite understand what happened to their mothers and their fathers. But I think with, with the Stolen Generations office open to everybody, people can come in and share with us all the time. And the schools have opened up their doors for us to attend the schools and talk to the children. And I also talk to the young trainee doctors at the Royal Darwin Hospital and the university. So... I think people are starting to take it all on board.
but it's been a long time coming. That was Eileen Cummings from the Northern Territory Stolen Generations Aboriginal Corporation. You're tuning in to Strong Voices. We're going to head to a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be hearing about uh, calls for legislative reform to reduce the amount of First Nations children in out-of-home care. I can see This is Dawn Fraser and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. The peak body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children says legislative reform across all jurisdictions is needed to reduce the amount of First Nations children in out-of-home care. The Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care, or SNAKE, launched their Family Matters report yesterday, which outlined concerning trends that will not meet closing the gap targets. Karma's Philippe Perez has more in this report. The SNAKE virtual conference ended yesterday with the launch of the report, with the organisation saying it's now time for transformation and change regarding out-of-home care. The report shows that First Nations children continue to be removed from family and kin at disproportionate rates. This is despite overwhelming evidence about the harm this causes to, to children, families and communities. The CEO of Snake and Arundel woman Catherine Little said at the launch there was cause for concern regarding statistics and trends and that policies regarding out-of-home care do not focus on the reunification of families. We're seeing a concerning trend towards permanency with high and increasing rates of children on third-party parental responsibility orders nationwide. This is a direct result of policies that drive a focus on putting children in permanent placements within two years without a focus on supporting our families and reunifying children. Across most jurisdictions, reunification rates continue to be lower for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children than for non-Indigenous children. So that's less and less children returning to live with their parents or family, disconnected from their cultural and spiritual heritage. Let's talk about dollars. We aren't doing nearly enough to keep children out of the system in the first place. 84% of government child protection funding is spent on intervention and out-of-home care. Only 16% is invested in supporting our children and families with early intervention and prevention services. This picture isn't just ugly, it's upside down. Let's talk about the underlying drivers. We can't ignore that many of our families are impacted by poverty, homelessness, intergenerational trauma and social exclusion, impacts that have become even more profound as the result of the COVID-19 pandemic. The peak body also rated the Territory very poorly on many grounds, highlighting there is no independent Aboriginal family-led decision-making model in legislation or practice and that communities continue to report the service system is culturally unsafe and not trauma-informed. Ms Little says positive change can happen across the Territory and across the country. We can flip this, can't we? Let's invest in supporting our families, building up our Aboriginal-led services that provide phenomenal wraparound programs and support to ensure parents, children and families feel empowered, culturally safe and cared for. This report can be used to inform how we work better together and ensure our children and families are happy, healthy and safe, strong in culture. Together, we can overhaul the current child protection systems that are often based on rigid and harmful statutory interventions that don't lead to better outcomes for our children or our families. Together, 
we can stop the conveyor belt that our children enter onto when they become part of the child protection system. Together, we know we can reach the closing the gap goal by removing barriers for our children and support for our families to care for our children. To reach this target, we only need to reduce the rate of entry to care by just 5% each year. If we do this, then the Family Matters goal to end overrepresentation of our children in child protection by 2040 will be a reality. It might seem like an enormous challenge, but for 1,500 generations, that's 1,500 generations, we have shown that we are capable of achieving the impossible. It is our children's right to feel connected to their song lines, their story, their dreaming, and as their custodians, we owe them that right. The future for our children lies in the balance and we call on governments at all levels to commit to doing things differently. With collective action, we can transform the system and shift the dial to uphold self-determination and invest in Aboriginal-led solutions. The Closing the Gap Agreement and the new National Framework for Protecting Australians' Children 2021 to 2031, governments will need to prove that they mean what they say in supporting positive, preventative measures that strengthen our families. We can truly transform the system if we truly value Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander decision-making. We need to value the great work that our people and our communities are already doing to help our families and children heal and be who they want to be. Once again, our Family Matters report puts a spotlight on the incredible Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations that provide ongoing wraparound support for our children and families so that children can be strong, so that they can be healthy in their early years, the years that matter most for our children. A member of the Snake Family Matters Leadership Group and Wurundjeri man, Carl Williamson, also spoke at the launch. He says the findings make for disturbing reading. I don't think it can be said enough that the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people make up 5% of Australia's population, that's being the child and young person population, but 50% of children and young people in out-of-home care. Now, this isn't a stat that my research colleagues, Jacinta and Paul, would be completely satisfied with its exact accuracy, but it paints a very confronting picture and it is absolutely real. If you're not confronted by that statistic and you're not confronted by the statistic in the Families Matters report, as Catherine mentioned, I would please ask you to check yourself and check where you're at because it's quite frankly, this statistic is disgusting. We cannot accept the unacceptable and must action change. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities hold the expertise and solutions at all levels. Family and communities have been caring for our children for tens of thousands of years and our Aboriginal community controlled organisations have provided a better and more accessible level of care across all sectors, child and family, health or other. Our leaders, such as Snake and the Family Matters Mob, are leading experts in their field and have a better grasp on any of the problems and solutions than any of your government mob do, not discrediting your place, but this is our space and these are our kids. Mr Williamson described the report's recommendations as modest and called for governments to pursue them immediately. The recommendations include increased funding for Aboriginal-led service design, establishing and supporting First Nations decision-making models across all jurisdictions, as well as all child-making decision points, and an expansion of authority to First Nations organisations working in the space. All we want is a little of the control the governments have relinquished from us in caring for our children back. 
We want a fraction of the funding you feed into a broken system and we want the opportunity to care for our kids our way. Our communities have the solutions and they are served to you on a silver platter. It's time to action them for the good of our children, for the good of our communities and for the good of our nation to heal. Historic and present systems have shown that they are incapable of meeting the needs of our children, families and communities. It's time to let us take control. We don't need fear of relinquish, relinquishing control, but support and hope to drive change. This offers you, offers you, if offered to your families, this will improve outcomes. Don't be afraid of giving us control. Don't be afraid of giving families control, support and hope. Both major political parties acknowledged the report. The Minister for the Department of Social Services, Michelle Landry, says the Morrison government had already pledged to turn around the worrying statistics. She said the federal government invested $98 million to out-of-home care, including measures to improve the involvement of First Nations organisations in family decision-making. That announcement was made earlier this year. Family Matters shed a light on the need for strong and decisive action to turn this around, and that's what the government is doing. This year we have announced important measures to help reverse these child safety trends. And a crucial element of this is by directly involving Indigenous leaders in both planning solutions and delivering those solutions. I'm convinced that together we can change the trajectory, securing major progress in improving outcomes for Indigenous kids and their families is entirely possible, but it will take an enormous effort from all of us to get there. I can assure everyone here today that the federal government, for our part, is stepping up to this challenge. Labor's Shadow Minister for the Department of Social Services, as well as the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney also acknowledged the work to reduce out-of-home care numbers will be tough and urged all governments across the country to make bold decisions in their legislation. What's so important about these reports is that it's not just about what the issues are, it is actually the solutions as well. And for that, I thank you very much. I know how tough this work is. I, like you, am alarmed at the increasing number of First Nations children in the out-of-home care system. But as I say, this report provides solutions. It talks about things like self-determination. It talks about the importance of data. It talks about the way in which systems ought to respond and can respond. It provides the solutions and is now incumbent on governments to look at those solutions um, at the federal and the state level to recognise that there is an emerging urgency, an emerging major issue with the number of Aboriginal children going into care The projections are frightening. That was the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, ending that report by Philippe Perez. We're going to head to a quick break on Strong Voices and we'll be right back after this. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Well, the first territory-specific guidelines regarding the reporting of Aboriginal domestic, family and sexual violence for journalists and communications officers was launched in Mbantua, Alice Springs this week. 
The Tangajira Women's Family Safety Group worked with academics and staff on reporting humanely and responsibly. The guidelines also explain how to avoid stereotypes and avoid harmful reporting. In the report, we hear from research scholar Che Brown, Connie Shore, a member of the Tunganjira Women's Family Safety Group and CEO of the Women's Safety Services of Central Australia, Larissa Ellis. These media guidelines were developed in collaboration with Aboriginal organisations, Aboriginal women's groups, specialist domestic family and sexual violence services, as well as media professionals throughout the Northern Territory. We had a series of online and in-person workshops, which I know a number of you attended and contributed to. And we also had an online survey for media professionals. And we took all of that information and all of that expertise and we collated it into the guidelines that you have before you today. The purpose of these guidelines is really about allyship. This is here to support media professionals as they report on domestic, family and sexual violence because media are our allies in preventing violence against women. When media report on violence against women, on domestic, family and sexual violence in ways that challenges harmful attitudes and beliefs and in ways that contextualises violence against women within the broader context of global violence against women and when they write and contextualise violence against Aboriginal women within the context of the ongoing violence of colonisation, these things all together, they help us create a society that no longer condones or justifies or minimises violence against women. So that's what we're here to do today, is celebrate that allyship and celebrate the supportive nature of these guidelines. Um, that being said, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, who's Connie Shaw. And she's going to read out our beautiful foreword that was written by Bridget Brennan, who is a long-term uh, friend, close friend of the Tungandura Women's Family Safety Group. But Connie Shaw was born and bred in Alice Springs. She lives at Mount Nancy Town Camp, and she works at the Tungandura Youth Centre or Brown Street. And she's a member of the Tungandura Women's Family Safety Group. And she's been a member since she was 16 years old, and she's still going. So she's been with the group for six or seven years now. Welcome, Connie. Hi, everyone. I'm reading on behalf of Bridget Brennan. So in 2017, on a July afternoon, in the centre of Wimbantua, our spring, came a moment the town should never forget. Holding flowers and memories of their loved ones, hundreds, thousands of strong women's children, and men marched through the streets to call for justice for the mothers, sisters, auntie and grandmothers lost to violence in the Northern Territory. It was a moving, moving and urgent call to action led by the groundbreaking work of the Tungajira Women's Family Safety Group. As a black journalist, one of the greatest privileges of my career has been to sit and listen to the stories of survivors of domestic, family and sexual violence in the Northern Territory. They are often stories of deep pain, resilience and love that all Australians should hear. The murders of Aboriginal women in the nations are tied to the ongoing impact of colonisation and require serious and extended courage by media professionals. But too often the nation does not mourn the loss of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. The media can do much more to celebrate their lives, their achievement, their voice. While Australia has been ongoing a national conversation regarding women's safety, it's painful to First Nation women to see our stories are sidelined. 
placed in the back of the news bulletins or simply just not told at all. These guidelines are an excellent resource for journalists, writers and media professionals who are covering domestic families of sexual violence in the Northern Territory. They remind us to humanise victims and survivors to use cultural sensitive reporting practices and to the centre of the, to the centre the centre the voices of relatives and community members, deadlines should not come before the need to contact, connect with communities to ensure that a tragedy is covered with the in, input, advice, cooperation, guide, guidance of those affected by family violence. It is an honour to know and work with the strong Aboriginal women of the Tungajur Women's Family Safety Group. Their respectful invitation to listen deeply, to learn and to lead as one we should all hear as journalists. Thanks, Connie, for reading that out. And I think some of the most important things that come through in that foreword is how too often our nation does not mourn the lives of First Nations women the way that they mourn the lives of other women. However, we want to have a nation, a society, and a culture that doesn't justify or condone violence against any women. Another equally important point there was about how we must balance these stories of violence with also the stories of resilience, of strength, and leadership, particularly of Aboriginal women. So these guidelines, they are meant as a reference for media professionals, but they're also meant to support the domestic family and sexual violence sector in the Northern Territory, police, healthcare, anyone who has to develop media releases and engage with the media. We are all on the same side in our collective goal to end violence against women. So with that, I'd like to introduce Larissa Ellis to formally launch our media guidelines. Larissa had a lot to do with the development of these guidelines. She attended workshops and she reviewed it and she's also the CEO of our Women's Shelter. Larissa is a long-term resident of Alice Springs, having grown up here and returned after obtaining her social work qualification. She is a mother of one who is now attending university and is married to an Alice Springs local. Larissa has over 25 years of experience working in Central Australian region. During that time, she's worked in child protection, prison rehabilitation, and being a hospital social worker with positions ranging from caseworker to, di to director. She has sat on several not-for-profits governance boards, further demonstrating her commitment to our community, Alice Springs and the Northern Territory. Larissa is currently CEO of the Women's Safety Services of Central Australia, an organisation that she has had a long-term commitment and passion for. So thank you and welcome, Larissa. So thank you for the opportunity to launch Changing the Story. I feel very privileged to have been chosen to do this. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Arunda people on whose land we meet today and pay respect to our elders past, present and future and all Aboriginal people present today. I wish to honour victims and survivors um, and all those who've been taken from us as a result of domestic and family violence. Um, we acknowledge you and we... Makes me cry, sorry. We will continue to raise our voices in solidarity with you. Thank you to those that have contributed, um, from survivors to the sector and the media. Thank you for your passion and commitment. 
uh, particularly the leadership of the women's uh, Tangentia Women's Safety uh, Group and the Gullivington Women's Space. Without your uh, advocacy, your first-hand experience um, and drive, we would not be here. Um, and these guidelines would likely not have been developed. I thank the funders for their support of this piece of work, the Northern Territory Government, <coughs> Gender Equity and Diversity and the Gender Institute at the Australian National University. I acknowledge that domestic family and sexual violence occurs for men as well. However, in the Northern Territory nationally and internationally, women are overwhelmingly the victims. As such, I'll speak from their perspective. As CEO of the Women's Safety Services of Central Australia, I see firsthand the impact uh, and of, of victim-biased or incomplete reporting of domestic family and sexual violence on women, families and communities. Research shows that there is a clear link between media reporting and attitudes and beliefs in relation to violence against women. Within that context, these guidelines take on significant importance. In the Northern Territory, often victim survivors' voices are silenced, muted or never heard. These guidelines, entitled Media Changing the Story, are a call to our media allies to ensure that we get these women's stories out. That we acknowledge the pain of domestic violence, but also the resilience of survivors. That we reinforce that all women in our community matter, that their experiences matter, their stories matter, they matter. That the sole person responsible for violent behaviour is the perpetrator. So how do we change this narrative? There are six principles inherent in the media changing the story guidelines that we ask media to abide by. That the safety of women and children is prioritised. The voice of victim survivors are elevated. Media representatives must build trust and relationships with those affected by domestic violence in order to report ethically. Consider the impact of your reporting on individuals, families and communities, but also on the attitudes and beliefs of violence against women in our community and your audience. Challenge the harmful stereotypes or myths about violence against women. The requirement that media representatives undertake deep listening to truly hear the stories being told to them. Media really do hold a privileged space and we want to ensure that this privilege is used appropriately and effectively with compassion and empathy. These guidelines provide a pathway, a do's and don'ts, if you will, of good practice for reporting ethically, safely and in a culturally competent and appropriate manner to humanise all victims and survivors of domestic and family violence, to place them in context, not just as the statistics or evidence of a problem, but humanise them. As being someone, a mother, aunt, niece, sister, granddaughter, grandmother, friend and colleague. I thank you for attending this launch and to the media, our allies for implementing them. And again, I thank those who've contributed and the women whose stories we will tell. Thank you. I just want to thank Larissa for that amazing, powerful speech. The women in front of you today all know firsthand what it is to lose someone that we love from domestic violence. This is an emotional day for us but also we take great pride and great resilience that we are taking steps to contribute to the legacy of the women lost to domestic family sexual violence. Thank you so much for coming today.
please take a copy. Please share and distribute among your networks. And I just want to end with this hopeful message. Violence against women is preventable and we all have a role to play so that we can have a society free from all forms of violence. Thank you. That was the launch of the first territory-specific guidelines uh, regarding the reporting of Aboriginal domestic family and sexual violence. You're tuning in to Strong Voices. We're going to go to a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be hearing from uh, Carmes Felipe-Perez with a bit of a wrap-up of some of the news from the week. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, that's right. You're tuning into Strong Voices. It's uh, 48 minutes past two o'clock here in Alice Springs. And I'm now joined in the studio by Karma's Philippe Perez. Good afternoon, Philippe. Hello, Kyle. How are you going? I'm going well. It's, of course, uh, getting closer and closer to Christmas. What are we, 15 days away now? Please don't tell me that. <laughs> I need to start doing some shopping, obviously. Although I'm not really a big fan of shopping anyway, so... But, of course, uh, apart from shopping, there is a lot going on at the moment in regards to news still. Um, Let's first talk about COVID. There's a lot lot that's been happening just here in the Territory alone. Uh, Run us through what's sort of been happening because there's still been stuff happening in Catherine as well. True. So earlier this week, Catherine had its lockout uh, restrictions lifted um, due to uh, what health authorities believe... uh, is a containment of cases in the region. Uh, there haven't been any more cases in larger Manu. Uh, there hasn't been any more cases in the Minjari or Robinson River communities. Uh, Robinson River is uh, also out of lockdown um, and uh, Binjari and Rockhole communities have uh, gone out of lockout as well lockout restrictions too. So essentially, Catherine is now in line with the Territory with the exception of a mask mandate in Catherine and the region surrounding it. Uh, so that's in effect until, I believe, mid-next week for seven days. Um, I think we're on like day three of that mask mandate right now. So essentially, other than making sure that you wear a mask wherever you go in Catherine, um, there's no other restrictions. Um there have been a smattering of new cases that have happened each and every day that is related to the cluster that's in Catherine. Um, so we've been seeing probably no more than four cases uh, in the last week each and every day. Um, and today we saw uh, three new cases in relation to the coronavirus cluster in Catherine. So it's an interesting little thing that where we've gotten to now because despite... Uh, having Catherine being no longer under lockdown and the Chief Minister saying, well, this will pretty much be the last kind of lockout or lockdown restrictions that we're going to be trying to impose on the Territory, a part of Catherine still remains under some restrictions at the moment. So to explain this, I'll, I'll try and make this as simple as possible. So Chief Minister Michael Gunner last, yesterday issued... A what they're calling a testing regime or testing blitz on a specific part of Catherine East, which health authorities identified as a low vaccination and high uh, COVID case area. And they're finding that a lot of houses in this particular area have been uh, 
seeing positive cases over the past week. And so to try and scale up and get more cases from that region, they decided to say to this particular small area of Catherine East, we're going to um, have a chief health officer direction on this small part of the area where people have to get tests. And so as of last night and as of right now, there are currently authorities going door-to-door knocking and um, doing tests on people at their homes. So this morning, three new cases came from that testing regime or testing blitz, and health authorities are expecting more from that particular... It's a very small region. It's literally about three or four blocks in Catherine right. East. And, and, and authorities are actually thinking that in this very small portion, uh, a lot of these cases are coming from. Right. Um, so, so the concern is the amount of cases that are coming out of such a small sort of area as yeah. opposed to being, you know, uh, you know, four cases, say, spread across the entire community of Catherine or something like That's that. That's exactly right. So, yeah, um, a couple of days ago, there was a three-year-old who was from that region who got a positive test. Um, high wastewater results kind of spurred them on to uh, thinking that this region had a lot of people who may be co-mingling. Um, they also said it was a high rate of co-mingling in the area. Um and today, a woman in her 40s tested positive who lived in a household with nine others, um, which was related as a close contact to that three-year-old. Uh, her daughter, who's under the age of 10, also tested positive for COVID-19. Another woman who also resides in the area but in another house um, with six others received a positive test. So, you know, uh, we will see probably the fact that they're living in a house with so many people is a big possibility there may be more cases th- in in those close contacts. We'll, let's wait and see, I suppose, and for yeah. the next few days. Uh, and let's talk about sort of going, zooming out a little bit in terms of talking about the territory and, you know, us in terms of our restrictions and stuff like that. In regards to the rest of Australia, how's yeah. that looking at the moment? So Chief Minister Michael Gunner uh, pretty much took a turning point, I suppose you could say, earlier this week in how we handle uh, the people who come into the Northern Territory. So we knew that from December the 20th, there will be a carte blanche ban on people who are unvaccinated coming into the Territory. But uh, up until now, people who are vaccinated... Um, need to go take a rapid antigen test at the airport wherever they arrive in Alice Springs, Catherine, Darwin, wherever from interstate. Uh, That's changing from the 20th, from next week. Uh, So um, what they're doing is banning red and green zones. There is no uh, need for the Northern Territory government to kind of assess, well, you've come from a high, you know, rates of infection area and so you will have restrictions but there's no point in that because essentially they said the rest of Australia in upcoming months will have red zones. So there's what they're doing is assessing people um, as to whether or not they have to go into quarantine as to whether or not you are fully vaccinated or not. So um, what's going to happen is that if you are coming in, one, you need to be fully vaccinated. Set two, you need to take a PCR test 72 hours before you arrive you need to test on uh well on before three day oh no on the third day that you were here in the territory and on day six of when you are in the territory after you arrive right so 
Um, it's fairly simple. That's pretty much across the board from anyone who comes in from anywhere at the moment. So, uh, yeah, that's where we stand in terms of our travel restrictions. There's also, I mean, the, the, the restrictions on going to remote communities are still in place. And the other restriction is that if you are arriving into Darwin or Alice Springs or, or Catherine, you need to stay in those high vaccination areas for two weeks. You can't really go into a remote community, which has gotten a few people who are in the tourism biz up at NAMS. Right. Uh, one of the other things, of course, was at a national level in terms of uh, the approval of vaccinations for children between 5 and 11 years old. Uh, obviously, that's going to be a pretty big impact in terms of uptake for a lot of people across Australia in terms of getting more of those numbers up and particularly I'd imagine as well for remote communities who do have a young population. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, here in the Territory, one of the main factors that had a shift in terms of um, having the Territory fully opened up to everybody was ensuring that vaccination rates were uh, counted for people who are from five upwards rather than 16 and upwards, which most of the other states um, take their rates from. So Michael Garner has said that, well, under the Doherty model, which is a framework that uh, talks about how we should approach safely opening up to the world, that in remote communities, um, vaccination rates should be modelled on, uh, in terms of when you should open up, should be modelled on... Um, people who are five and over. So we don't we didn't have a vaccine for people who are five between the ages of five until eleven. But up until um but up until um I've just lost my train of thought. <laughs> but up until um just recently that's no longer the case because we have a Pfizer vaccine uh now available and approved to be used and uh, it's hoped to begin in early January where we're going to have uh, young ones be uh, vaccinated. And, and, of course, for parents, I'd imagine, you know, who may be a little bit concerned or, or you know, do have some questions, it's always a good idea to go to your local health service and, uh, you know, have a chat with them about possibly getting your child vaccinated. That's um, true, yeah. It's always good to make sure you have that step. Uh, let's quickly talk about uh, the APY lens in regards to mental health services, Philippe. Yeah, so a review of children's mental health services on the Anangu, Pitinjara, Yakanjara lands or APY lands has called for staff numbers working in mental health in the region to dramatically increase. So currently, mental health staff working in the APY lands work on a fly-in, flyer basis or work via telehealth. There's no one actually based in the APY lands who deal with mental health issues. Uh, but a report... Uh, from the uh, chief psychiatrist in South Australia, John Braley, found that major impacts to the mental health of young people in the region included an exposure to childhood sexual abuse, physical violence, substance abuse, unresolved mental illness arising from both colonisation and the stolen generations. And this review was undertaken um, uh, over uh, a number of months uh, with uh, John Braley saying that there needed to be a doubling of locally-based staff. Uh, currently, there needs to be three mental health staff uh, servicing the APY lands. He says six is needed to have them um, pretty much effectively uh, serviced. 
that he said there's you know difficulty in trying to make an appropriate mental health service available to the APY lands because of a difficult and insecure funding model. And there's also been former staff who had worked in the APY lands that said that leadership issues um, and governance were failing in the region, which caused issues for staff in the region. Um, so this report says that South Australian... Uh, this report was tabled into Parliament and South Australian Health Minister Steve Wade said he welcomed the report's recommendations and will act on increasing stuff as well. On that note, uh, Philippe, thanks so much for joining us to give us an update on the news. No worries, Carl, and you have a safe and happy holidays as well. We'll probably see you next year. <laughs> you too, Philippe, and thanks for all the news from throughout uh, the year on Strong Voices. Uh, thank you for tuning in today here on Strong Voices. Uh, again, as per usual, if you missed any of the stories or would like to listen back to the program, you can head to the website at karma.com.au. Today is the last program for 2021, uh, and the next few weeks will feature some of our highlighted interviews uh, from the past few years. We'll also be taking a break over January, and uh, Strong Voices will be back in February of next year. My name's Kyle Dowling. Hope you have a safe and wonderful uh, Christmas and New Year's break, and I'll see you back in 2022.